morning. Pastors at the gathering. If uh, you join us for Selwood, we're so glad that you're here this morning. Oh, you want to turn it on? Alright, how's that? A little better? This is sort of a tradition for the gathering that at our camp out, we sort of yeah. Sort of a tradition at the gathering that on this camp out weekend we sort of celebrate who we are as a church and we we look forward to um, the year ahead. And the reason for that is that the gathering started in June 2009. And about four weeks after the church started, we took a camp out like this, and it just was a time of fellowship, a time um, where a lot of relationships began to be built, there began to be a tradition that we do this every year. Like I said, the Gathering Church, so this is actually kind of our seventh anniversary. Yeah. So we have the Gathering Church, which is seven years old, and we're also joined by Selwood Baptist Church that was founded in 1904. Yeah. <laughs> So we got one church that's seven years old, another church that's 112 years old, which might seem like an odd couple to be together for joint fellowship. But maybe not so odd, after all, as our missions are very similar, in fact, to celebrate the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, to make disciples in Portland, and to glorify God through fellowship together. So what I was thinking and praying about where the Lord would have us be today... My mind was directed to Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And this address in Acts chapter 20 is sort of famously known as Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And um, Paul's been uh, in Ephesus at this point about three years. And he's getting ready to leave to go to Jerusalem. And so what he does is he gathers all the elders together that are in Ephesus, and he gives them this farewell address of sorts. And what's been traditionally, um, the way this text has been often used, is to address ministers, to say this is sort of a job description of sorts of what pastors are supposed to do. But I'm going to read it to us this morning, and I'm going to apply it a little bit broader. I'm going to apply this text to all of our lives, and how um, our lives ought to look. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and I'll probably read down to uh, 28 or so. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happens to me through the plots of the Jews. How I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know some of you, excuse me, I know that none of I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend to you, excuse me, I commend to you, you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Stop there. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful, God, to gather today as your people, to sit under the preaching of your word, to hear your word expounded to us. But I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would open our eyes to behold marvelous and wonderful things in your word, God. We pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we would be more enamored with Jesus Christ as a result of hearing your word preached to us. Lord, I ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sort of the central verse in this section here is verse 24. In verse 24, it's where Paul sort of summarizes the capstone of what his mission is. And he says in verse 24 that he's finished the mission that Jesus himself gave to him, which was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And as I was re- reflecting on my own life and I was reflecting on our church and, and churches and thinking, what would I want to say at the end of my life? So we're seven years into a church. You're 112 years into a church. What do I want to say at the end of my life that my life was all about? And what do we want to say as churches when we've run the course, when we've spent our years fellowshipping together? What do we want to say we accomplished as a church? And I think that verse 24 is essential to us thinking about what it is to be a local church, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, every generation, it seems, needs to recapture what what the essence and the nature of the gospel actually is. It sort of started, I've been reading these last few weeks uh, in some writings in the 16th century with Martin Luther and how Luther was sort of rediscovering the gospel for his own time and, and generation and how that lit the church on fire with fresh, fresh vigor and, and fresh faith and trust in the grace of God. But then that sort of waned as time went on and then you had a man like John Wesley who came on the scene and he again brought fresh faith and fresh air and wind testifying to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read for us in a few minutes here a quote from the first president of Princeton Seminary, Archibald Alexander, where he again is going to say the same thing and he says it in 1844. And I think the task is before us again as, a local, as local churches to rediscover what it is to testify to the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's sort of 
It's not the kind of church that I grew up in, really. A church I grew up in didn't testify to the gospel. It was a church that was largely built on rules and so on, but there wasn't fresh wind of faith and trust in the grace of God. So I'm going to expound it to us how that looks just by looking at a couple different things in this text that Paul gives us, the ways in which we testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The first thing that he says, you can see in verse 20, is he says, this kind of religion, this kind of Christianity is both public and private. He says we met publicly, but also we were meeting house to house. It means that being a Christian and being a local church doesn't mean that we just gather on the Lord's Day. It's not just gathering like we are today, but meeting together in house to house, deeply involved into each other's lives. And if we're going to be these kinds of churches that accomplish what Paul says in verse 24, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, then we need to be radically interconnected in our lives. But there's something about the way that we're interconnected too. Because Paul uses this phrase, this word, three different times in verse 19, verse 31, and verse 37. He says this word, tears. He says, I admonished you day and night in tears. Because Christianity is a religion. Christianity means that we get down deep into each other's lives and into each other's hearts. It's not just surface level, which means that at times it's painful. But we ought need to be in each other's lives to the degree so that we can understand how to apply this gospel to each other's lives, to the details of each other's lives even. But tears also require a level of humility among us, which he even says in verse 19. He uses this word, I was among you in all humility. And humility means that you just don't take yourself too seriously. You know who you actually are. But you can only do that. We can only have that level of humility and vulnerability with one, each other, with one another if we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel we know that all of our worth, all of our value, all of our hope, all of our significance is given to us by grace through faith. And when that begins to sink down into our hearts, when we know that who we are and our value before people is already finished, already accomplished by what God has done for us on the cross, then we can begin to be transparent people. We can be a kind of people who can have humility. We can be the kind of people who can be transparent with one another. We can be the kind of people that can admonish with tears. Truth without tears is an oppressive community. Truth without tears is an oppressive community. But truth with tears, truth with humility, is how we actually grow together and grow in grace. Well, the second thing that Paul gives us here and how we accomplish what he says in verse 24 is he says that he gives us shepherds. He's addressing the Ephesian elders. And what's interesting is that Paul has been here for three years. He's been in this in Ephesus for three years. He's been teaching from house to house. He's been going night and day. He's been admonishing everywhere he goes. And when he leaves, he doesn't just say, okay, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Bye now. He brings together other elders around him and says, now you need to shepherd this flock. And he instructs them how they ought to do it. What's interesting though is that the Bible always calls pastors pastors and shepherds. It doesn't ever call them generals. Because generals just give top-down orders. But shepherds are among the flock. Shepherds are tender. 
Shepherds know their sheep. Shepherds are going the same direction as their sheep. It says earlier on in this text, I think verse 19 or so, that he lived among them. He was living among them as a shepherd. Verse 18, I think, says, lived among you. The other thing he says about being a shepherd is he doesn't consider his life of any value. Verse 24. He's not a shepherd. He's not out for some kind of gain about himself. For churches to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, these churches need shepherds that don't count their lives of any value, that live transparent lives among their people. Well, the third thing, the third thing that Paul tells us in verse 21 is that their mission was all about calling people to repentance and faith. Their mission was all about calling people to repentance and faith. And repentance just means to turn from living one direction and turn in faith and trust to Jesus Christ. It means to stop living one way and to turn and deliberately live another way. To live for the glory of God. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what our mission as churches is all about. To call people to faith and repentance in, in Jesus Christ. To live lives together in such a way that we're admonishing one another in tears. That we're so interconnected on Monday through Saturday. And then to call other people to join into that. To call other people in to trust Jesus Christ. To see him as beautiful and glorious and all that he is. To call people to put their hope and their identity and their trust in Jesus Christ. Well, what's interesting is that the way that we normally think about the gospel is in verse 21 terms. We normally think about the gospel as the way that we enter the kingdom or the way that we're saved. And then we think that we move on to more... um, uh, we move on from the elementary doctrine of how we just get saved. And then we move on. Our discipleship is then based on other, uh, other means and other modes. But Paul says that his entire ministry was about testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Which means that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has practical implications for all of our lives. It's not simply the message whereby we enter into the relationship with Jesus. It's the message whereby we continue and we grow and we're sanctified and we're made more into his image. As I said, there's a quote here that I'm going to read to us from Archibald Alexander. And he's writing in 1844. And it's striking to me to read this kind of quote. Knowing what happened with Luther and knowing what happened in the Great Awakening and with Edwards, to get to 1844 and for Archibald Alexander to write this is just encouraging to me and reminding me that we as churches also stand in need to recapture the nature and the essence of the gospel and its practical implications for our lives. This is what he says. The book that he wrote was called Thoughts on Religious Experience. And he says this, he says, it seems desirable to ascertain as precisely as we can the reasons why Christians commonly are of so diminutive a stature and of such feeble strength in their religion. He's saying, we need to think about why Christians seem so weak in their faith. First, there is a a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. 
to exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world to do. And to preach this doctrine fully without verging towards antinomianism is no easy task and is therefore seldom done. What that means is that to preach the gospel, to preach divine grace, and to not veer off into lawlessness, which is antinomianism, to preach grace so strongly that it says it doesn't matter how we now live our lives, to thread that needle, he's saying, is so difficult to do that so seldom pastors do it. But Christians cannot be lean and feeble when deprived of their proper nourishment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow. And the doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only object of true faith. Christians are too much inclined to depend on themselves and to not derive their life entirely from Jesus Christ. He says there is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace, but it possesses none of the characteristics of a Christian's life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth in systems of, of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is knowledge, acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. It can be acknowledged. The doctrine of divine grace, he is saying, can be acknowledged. We can believe it. We're saved. We're Christians. But the rest of our lives are not practically felt and acted on this doctrine. He says, the new convert lives upon his frame rather than on Jesus, while the older Christian is still struggling, while the, new, while the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing because he's relying on the expectations of his own, his own strengths. So he closes with this. He says, here I am persuaded is the root of the evil. And until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God is manifest in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. Until ministers of the gospel, and until we, I want to apply it broader than just me or Jeff or the other elders, until we as a people know how to clearly, fully, and practically apply the grace of God as manifest in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. That's what Paul gave his life to. Paul gave his life to testify to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he wrote about in all of his epistles. His epistles are all about applying the gospel to our lives. What it means, if Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived, perfectly obeying his Father, and at the end of his life, if he was murdered and crucified on a Roman cross, bearing the full wrath of God in your place and on your behalf, if that's true, it must have massive and deep implications for all of your life. Paul says in Galatians 2.14 that when he was addressing Peter for being, uh, going back to legalism, he saw that Peter's life was not in step with the truth of the gospel, which means that the gospel must be able to be applied practically to someone's life. If, P if Paul is saying his life didn't look like the gospel, his life was not in step with the truth of the gospel in Galatians 2.14. It means that the gospel must have practical implications for how you actually live. But it's not just a moral example to you. It's not just a moral example to say to you, okay, Jesus was a forgiving person, so be a forgiving person. No. It's saying, 
Jesus forgave you. You were at an enemy of God. Which means if you understand the depth to which you've been forgiven, no matter what anybody else ever did to you, you did far worse to God. Your trespass against God was infinitely more what your neighbor ever did for you. And when you see that and when you realize it, you'll just be freed to forgive them. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to renounce all ungodliness. The grace of God appeared, teaching us to renounce all ungodliness. How in the world does that work? We normally think it says, The law of God appeared, teaching us to renounce all ungodliness. But it's the grace of God, that gratuitous pardon from God, that teaches us to renounce all ungodliness. When we see that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, when we see that he stood in our place and on our, in, 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 in our stead when we were his enemies, when we were far from him, running the other direction, and he stood in our place and died the death that we deserve to die, and we see the massive pardon that he offers us, and we see the great love of God that's given to us in the gospel, that, my friends, will teach us to renounce ungodliness. That'll say, I just want to be like this God. This God is beautiful and glorious and now he accepts me freely through faith. He accepts me because of the grace that he's offered me in the gospel. And now my obedience to him is a way to glorify him and my obedience to him is a way to just be closer to him. To know him more. To be near a God like this. I don't want to live an ungodly life anymore that separates me from him. I want to live a godly life that brings me closer to him. That feels his presence more. That knows his love all the more. And that kind of passion and fervor only comes from the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from more law, more rule. It comes from seeing his beauty and his glory and dying for sinners in their stead. In seeing that Paul tells us in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you, my friends. There's no condemnation for your parenting. There's no condemnation for the way that you've treated your spouse. There's no condemnation for the way that you've not loved your neighbor as yourself. There's no condemnation for you for the way that you are lazy at work. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that ought not produce antinomianism in you. It ought not say, doesn't matter then. doesn't matter what I can do. I can do whatever I want. No. If you see the depth to which you've been forgiven, the depth to which the gospel has freed you to love God, you will simply love him all the more. And we ought not be afraid, my friends, to preach the doctrine of divine grace, of gratuitous pardon to one another. And that's what we as churches ought be about. At the end of our lives, at the end of our time, when it's our time to move on, to go be with the Lord, or however, whatever the circumstances, we ought able to be, we ought be able to say, as Paul did in verse 24, that we testified to the gospel of the grace of God. He says earlier, or later in this text, that he, that he, um, he, he didn't shrink back, that he, he declared them the whole counsel of God. But he zeroes in on verse 24 and says, this is the particular mission that Jesus has given me himself. And that's our vision as a church. Our vision as a church is to learn the various facets at which the good news of Jesus Christ applies practically to our lives. We close with this. 
There's a, most scholars that um, have written commentaries on this section in Acts have noticed a strange coincidence between the way that Paul is saying farewell and the way that Jesus was saying farewell in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's this strange coincidence in both of these situations. But you see, here, Paul is surrounded by all of his friends. And they're embracing, and they're weeping, and they're even kissing, it says. But at the end of Jesus Christ's life, in Mark chapter 14, when he was in the garden, he was utterly alone. The one man who'd been faithful his entire life, perfectly faithful to his friends, was utterly deserted. They could not even stay awake and pray while he was in the hour of his greatest need. Jesus Christ became utterly alone and forsaken for, our, for, our, for us. So that in the gospel, he gives to us brothers and sisters, and mothers and fathers in the church. We can have a church like Paul did in Ephesus, where he's surrounded. He's surrounded by people that love him and know him, people that he'd been with night and day for the last several years. And there's great weeping and there's great joy among them. And we can have that too as churches. And we can only have that because we've been saved by the grace of God. Because Jesus Christ was alone in the garden. We, my friends, are given one another. Father, we thank you for your love and grace towards us. Lord, we are grateful that you called us to be your people. We are grateful that you've given us the gospel. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be about testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Would you help us, Lord? Would you use our churches to invigorate other churches in Portland to recapture and reclaim the essence and the nature of the doctrine of free and divine grace, that doctrine of gratuitous pardon? We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.